You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, when I was a kid at my parents' house, uh, I took picky eating to new and glorious heights. I was varsity picky eater. I majored in it in college. I just, this, I was, I don't know what it was. I don't know. I was, I was pretty heavy set as a kid. I don't even know how that was possible because I never ate what my parents gave me, but I was, and I just, I just had a really long list of things that were never going to be consumed by my mouth. And uh, you know, I think about uh, uh, Super Bowl weekend one year, I forfeited my right to watch the Super Bowl uh, because I refused to eat my mom's meatloaf. Uh, and there's a good answer for why I did that. Uh, it's because it's called meatloaf, which is really the worst compound word that has ever been devised by mankind. It's just really gross to me and I, I refuse to eat it. So I missed the Super Bowl. When, uh, when I was four years old at daycare, I, rem- I have this memory. I'm, I'm there and they fed me beets uh, and the beet went in my mouth, but no further. And it stayed there from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. when my mom came and got me. And when they extracted the beet from my mouth, it was pure white. I had sucked the red from the beet. I don't know. I have, pray for me. I I have something wrong with me when I think about food. I've got very strict guidelines about what I'm going to consume. And for whatever reason, the thing that has historically been kind of right at the top of my list of like, I'm never, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to eat that. That thing has been, and please forgive me, guacamole. I know. It's the great Texas sin. You can't, not eat guacamole, but I, let me just account for why uh, for a second. I want to give you an accounting for for a seven-year-old mind, right? Guacamole, it it encompasses all the the things and ideas and words that, that are disgusting. It is a bowl of, of sludgy, bright green, cold, mushy stuff made from vegetables, mind you, right? Like, I don't, I really don't know who would eat it. When I was a kid, I was like, who, why, why would you, I'm praying for you. And uh, I just couldn't do it. And I was, I was committed to this. I had this conviction for years until I met my wife and got married to her. And she changed me. (laughs) Something happened. I don't know. I started hanging in the kitchen with her and I, you know, I didn't know what she's doing. I see these, she's cutting up and dicing and, and scooping and mashing all these really fresh and bright and vivid and fragrant ingredients. And, and you know, she's got, she's got the lime she's squeezing into it and the spices go in a little paprika and all this stuff's happening. And I just, I was, I was inspired. It looked I don't know, this looks good. And then the, the moment came, the moment of truth, the, the scoop and, and serve, she, get, she gets one on a, on a chip and says, hey, do you wanna try it? And, and, and I received the, the green substance and, uh, and in faith consumed it. <laughs> and I was changed. I was, an, I was a new man. Uh, I, I, I have since been radically converted and and I'm now a, a guacamole enthusiast, an advocate. Um, I go to rallies for this stuff. It's a big deal to me now. I love guacamole. And how, how is that possible? Well, it's because the thing that I thought 
would most surely inhibit my happiness was shown to me for what it really was, lovely and delightful, right? Now, what does this have to do with the book of Philippians? Well, if you're like me, you're coming to this book this morning with some misunderstandings. Maybe you don't even know what they are yet, but some misunderstandings of some very important truths. And really that's how it feels most of the time we come to scripture. We have things that we think are one way that the Bible shows us are another way. There are some things in this letter <clears throat> that call, uh, uh, that, that when we see it, we call them undesirable. But when our God sees them, he calls them good and lovely. And in this text this morning, God's gonna, going to correct our misunderstanding of some things so that we'll see them rightly for what they are, lovely and delightful. That's what he means to do. And we're, we're gonna see an, a new way of, of living and engaging with the world around us. And we're gonna be shown it through the lens or through the life of, of three men's stories this morning. Uh, we're gonna be looking at sort of three case studies. Paul, Timothy, and a guy named Epaphroditus. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And each one of them, we're gonna see, chooses to, at different points, loosen their grip from around something the world says is valuable and good in order to take hold of something else that the world says is not valuable, is not good, should not be held onto. With Paul, we're gonna be shown that Christ is more valuable than our freedom. With Timothy, we'll see that Christ is more valuable than our self-interest. And Epaphroditus is gonna show us that Christ is more valuable even than our life. So we'll see these three moments play out and then we'll end by asking how their example should change us. So let's start by looking at Paul. If you got a Bible, get it out, get it open. We're gonna be in the text uh, looking at it, verse 17 of chapter two. And he says this, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Okay, so let's stop there. This text is coming on the heels of, of last week's text, which was Paul calling the church to a humble, godly lifestyle. That's what he was doing last week. And he was telling them that their obedience to the gospel will be a sort of um, proof positive that Paul hasn't been wasting his time with these guys. That's essentially what the text said, that, that he hasn't been laboring in vain is what he calls it. And then in, in this, this moment of the letter, he reflects on that, Paul does, and he says, you know what? Um, I'm, actually, I'm actually good with the fact that I'm not giving so much of my, or that I'm giving so much of myself to see Christ formed in you. I'm actually good with that. And he likens the work of, of pouring himself out like that to being poured out as a drink offering. That when Paul thinks about his service to Christ for this church's sake, he sees it as a type of sacrifice. And it's actually meant to evoke in our minds the like images of like the Old Testament sacrifices that the priests would perform before God. That's what's happening here. And, and, and now what, what exactly is Paul sacrificing? What is he saying that he's being poured out 
uh, as or for? What, what's, what is he sacrificing here? Well, there's a lot of ways to talk about this, right? And if you've read anything from Paul or read anything in Acts, you can have a sense of there's, there's plenty of things that he has sacrificed in his life. But maybe the biggest felt sacrifice for Paul in this moment in time uh, was his freedom. Paul had given up his right to freedom. Well, now what do I mean? Well, remember, he's in Rome writing to the Philippians, but he's in Rome, not just kicking it. He's in Rome under house arrest in Rome. And, and as he's writing this letter, commentators tell us that he's literally chained to a Roman guard who is preventing him from exercising his liberty. He can't just get up and, and head to Philippi and check in on these guys, which he's really eager to do because he's chained to a guy in Rome. He's in prison in Rome. He has given up his right to freedom. And then, and here's a curious thing, right after talking about this forfeiture of his freedom and talking about it in terms of sacrifice, I've sacrificed, right after saying that, he says this, but I'm glad and rejoice with you all. See, this is what I mean uh, when, I, when I say that like this text is about to have us like recalibrate our spiritual taste buds around some things that we thought were bad, but, but are actually good because this is a weird thing to, to connect. Paul is... Paul is connecting two things here that we don't normally say belong together. He's, he's saying sacrifice and joyfulness are on the same team. They're friends, they're with each other. And we don't, we don't think like that, right? This is a very uh, unmodern way of talking. For us, if we're honest, right, those are mutually exclusive categories. I'm either sacrificing something or I'm happy right? Or I'm trying to figure out ways to sacrifice less so I could get more happiness, right? They're mutually exclusive for us, but not for Paul. For Paul, they're intertwined. They, they are connected. They feed off each other. Sacrifice and joy are friends. And for Paul, this, the sacrifice that brings him joy in this situation is his freedom. He's giving up his freedom for these people. What, a, what just, what powerful imagery, and that's the example that Paul provides for us here. He says all this and then he keeps moving uh, because he wants to get down to some brass tacks, some, some family business, okay? So, so for Paul, uh, he, he has given up his right to freedom, but then he moves on and now he wants to share with this church some, uh, some practical ways that he means to care for them right now. And this is where we get into Timothy's story, okay? So we're moving from Paul now. Now he's about to talk about Timothy uh, and he shows up in verse 19. So uh, read it with me. It says this, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. So let's do, um, let's do a little bit of remembering here for a moment. Paul's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. 
uh, they're a Roman colony and this, this church is not in Rome. It's, it's further away from Rome and he really cares about these people. Remember, he, he's, he's, he, he loves these guys. He wants to keep up with them. He wants to stay connected with them. He's not just, um, he's not just dispassionately interested in them. You know what I mean? Like this isn't like when you wrote in that guy's yearbook, uh, you know, senior year, like stay in touch, stay sweet, but you, know, you don't see him for like, 20 years and then you run into him at the reunion. He's like 50 pounds heavier. He doesn't have a hairline. He's wearing Tommy Bahama, everything. You're like, what happened to this guy? I don't know. No, if that's you, by the way, I apologize. Um, a guy came up to me after service, uh, last service, and, and he was wearing a Tommy Bahama shirt and uh, we hugged it out. It was fun. But uh, my, my point is just, it's not like that. It's not just I'm saying I care about you. Uh, but, but really, I just want to go about my life. He's saying, no, I really do want to keep in touch with you. And the proof of that is he's going to send his most valuable disciple to check in on them. Well, how do we know that Timothy was his most valuable disciple? Well, the, the text tells us, right? Look at verse 20. For I have no one like him, which is a remarkable sentence, isn't it? Because our boy Paul knows a lot of people, Right? And essentially what he's saying is, as I'm going through my mental Rolodex of like all of the spiritual MVPs that I know, the guy who rises to the top of that list for me is Timothy. That's what he's saying here. Now, why? Why, why Timothy? Why is Timothy that MVP for Paul? There's, there's so many things you could point to, but, but why does he point to Timothy uh, to say that he has no one like him? Well, Paul gives us his answer. And, and his answer is profound. He gives it in two parts. So I want us to see this here. This is the answer for why, why choose Timothy to send? Why is Timothy the one that Paul says, there's nobody like him? Uh, part one of his answer is this. There's no one like Timothy, Paul says, because Timothy genuinely cares for the good of others. He cares for people. Look at verse 20. For I've, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That word concerned there in the Greek is this word merimanao, um, which uh, it shows up it just a couple chapters later in this same book in one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, um, in Philippians 4, verse 6, where Paul writes, do not be anxious for anything, right? But in everything with prayer and petition, present your request. That verse, don't be anxious for anything. That word anxious there is the same Greek word that Paul's using here when he says that nobody has a genuine concern for your welfare like Timothy. So what's Paul getting at? Why is he connecting those two ideas? Well, he's trying to say, and think about it like this, the things that really weigh on Timothy's mind like the things that, you know, what keeps you up at night? The things that Paul's saying keep Timothy up at night that they give him almost like an anxiety that like he's burdened about. Those things are not his things. They're yours. They're your things. That Timothy's like greatest concerns in life are not like his upward mobility or his growth in the company or his success or like his well-being. It's your well-being, Philippians. Timothy has a genuine concern for your well-being with nothing attached. 
It's not, I care for you so that one day you'll care for me. There's no strings. It's not like that. It's a, it's a sincere, genuine concern for other people, which is just a remarkable thing. In Timothy, we see, we see someone giving up their right to self-interest, right? Paul forfeited his right to freedom. Timothy, this example, he's forfeiting his right to his own self-interest. He's saying, I'm not interested in what I'm interested in. I'm interested in you and your interests. That's what concerns me. And Paul's saying, that's rare. That's so rare, there's nobody like this guy. It was rare in Paul's day. And, and it's rare now, right? I mean, like how many people do you know like that? That, that we could say like, man, that you just have a sincere care for others with no regard for yourself. I'm not saying we don't know those people. I think we do, but I just think that list is shorter than it ought to be. I, by God's grace, I get to see this like front row seat every day with my wife. I just get a chance to brag on her right now. But my wife, y'all, I know a lot of you know her, but man, this is just so her. Like, I, I want you ladies to know something because a lot of you, you ladies and, and girls in here know this. Uh, you, you met her, talked with her. The normal conversation I have with my wife after she speaks with one of you here at church or in the lobby or on a phone call or she goes out to coffee, the normal conversation after that with me when we're in the car driving back from something, it usually goes like this. Oh, I just, I just love so-and-so. Can we, can we stop at Target? I, I wanna get them a gift. Do we have any more stationery? I'm writing them a note tonight. I'm writing four notes tonight. I'm gonna write them a note every day of the week this week. That's what I'm gonna do. That's my wife's internal script. Her default setting is just love that way. Can, can I tell you what my default setting is? It is how quickly can I get to Whataburger after this service? That is, where's the closest one and how do I get, that's all I, that's not my wife. My wife has a genuine care, concern, Mary Manao for people. And I love seeing it. And don't we love seeing that in people? It's just a, it's such an attractive attribute, man. It's a mark of godliness, isn't it? Someone who's willing to say, I'm going to give up my right to my self-interest to see your interests come to fruition. I mean, that is beautiful. But there's, there's more. There's more to Paul's argument. I said, it's two-parted. That's part one. That's, that's the first reason why Paul says uh, that there's nobody like Timothy. It's that he has genuine concern for others. But there's another part and it comes in the next verse. So read it with me. It says verse 21, for, or because, so he's commentating on the last thing he said, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to pause here because this is a really uh, weird way to make an argument. Uh, and I don't know if you see it right away. So I, I want to slow down over it uh, because it's not super intuitive. Like Paul's logic doesn't off the bat make sense. And I'll show you why. Let's, let's read this moment again. How, think you're writing this now. How would you end this sentence? Just think, think it out with me. I'm gonna paraphrase. For I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for everyone besides Timothy that I know just seeks their own interests, their own welfare, not those of, what do you say there? You would probably say others, right? 
that, that everyone else I know but Timothy, they, they seek their own interests, not those of others. That's how the text seems to me that it should read. And one of the reasons I feel that is because Paul literally says that 16 verses earlier. Three weeks ago, we were in this text. Uh, verse four says this. You can look at it in your Bible. It's right here. Let each of you look, verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of, there it is, others. So watch this. Verse four says, we're to look to the interests of others. Verse 21 says, no, we're, we're to look to the interests of Jesus Christ. What is going on here? Is Paul, is Paul dumb? Like, you know, like, is he, is he, uh, sweet Paul. He gives it his best shot right in these epistles, but he just, he can't remember what he wrote like five verses earlier, but he gives it his best shot. He looks like he's having fun out there, right? And is he dumb? Is like, is he, is he a bad writer or not sharp? Is like, is that Paul? No, right? Have you read Romans? Paul is a systematic robot. Like he, nobody is more linear or logical. Like Paul is a, a lawyer when he writes. He's very organized and strategic in his argument. So, so it can't be that. He can't be a knucklehead writer. He's a brilliant mind. That's not what's happening here. So what is going on? What's going on? Let me just say this as an aside, okay? Uh, because you might experience this a lot. You might be sitting down reading your Bible in your own just private time with the Lord and you come up to these moments, right? These like insurmountable moments of like, that's confusing or that seems to conflict with this other thing or those don't go together or that doesn't logically flow and I don't know what's going on. When, I wanna say this. Uh, whenever you come to a, a, a something in your Bible study that, that goes against your line of reasoning, your way of thinking, can I invite you to do something? Don't become a cynic and check out, right? And go, well, this must be an error or uh, I don't know, that's impossible to, it's all just spiritual stuff, I don't get it. Don't do that. That's not good Bible study. Don't do that. When you come to a moment of confusion, I want you to do something else. I want you to rejoice. Can I tell you, I know that's weird, but can I tell you why? In my experience, most of my time studying the word, and this happens eight times out of 10 when I sit down with the scripture, I come to this like, uh, this moment in my study where I don't understand something and it's confusing. And I've learned to realize that as I press in, I'm really just a few seconds, few minutes, a few days maybe away from God absolutely blowing my mind with something, right? It's not that the, that the Bible is poorly written or not profound. It is that it is far more profound than you and I. You see that? And when we assume that like our lines of reasoning are the only correct ones, we shortchange ourselves from seeing so much of the glory that's in scripture. So my invitation to you is this, let your thinking conform to God's word instead of forcing God's word to conform to your thinking. Because when we do that, we're gonna see glory. We're gonna see God show off in ways that that we've never seen in scripture. 
we harmonize the text. We make sense of it. This is what it means to be a student of the word. And that's what we're about to do right now. So we're, we're, we're gonna do this together as a church. Here we go. We're being asked to make sense of a seeming contradiction. Is it that we are about to be, uh, 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 that we are to be about the interest of others? Like, is that the command? Or is it that we're about, or to be about the interests of Jesus? Which of those two is it? Because he says both. And they seem to, to contradict one another. And I want to submit to you that I think the answer is yes. And you start with Christ. Yes, and you start with Christ. And, or let me say it a different way. In order to be a person who is committed to the interest of others, you must first be a person who's committed to the interests of Christ. Do you see that? That's how this text resolves itself. In, I'm gonna say that again. In order to be a person who is committed to the interest of others, Paul's saying you must first be a person who is committed to the interests of Christ. And Christ, here's the thing, is interested in the eternal good of others. Chapter 10 of the book of John, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Why did Jesus come? To do that, to give us life. And we know, because we're good students of the word, that life is found in himself. And so what Jesus is really saying is, I've come to give you me. Jesus is about Jesus, and therefore, de facto, Jesus is about your good, right? He's about himself being exalted, and he knows that the best thing for the human soul is when you get to see and enjoy Jesus so what Jesus means to do for us is give us more Jesus. And in that way, Jesus is interested in your good. He's interested in what you need. That's what, that's what it means here. Or to say it a different way, Piper says it like this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, right? That's, that's what this is. So what, is, what does this mean for us practically? I, I know this, it's a little bit heady, but just follow me for a second. Here's what this means practically. If you wanna be a person who says, I'm committed to human flourishing, I'm committed to human happiness, to the ending of, of injustices, social or otherwise, that I'm committed to giving a voice to the marginalized or to the outcast or the overlooked or the orphan or the widow, whatever it is, that I'm committed to that work, to that good, this text is saying, yes, then be about Christ. You wanna be about those things? Then be about Christ first. See, what many folks are, are doing today in our culture, and you see this a lot in, in uh, more liberalizing denominations, and you see it a lot among younger, millennial, like activist-minded Christians is that there's a commitment to social justice without a commitment to the God of social justice. Do you see that? And, and here's the thing, you cannot, what this text is saying is you cannot cast off sound doctrine, good theology, 
right ways of thinking about the Bible or Christ. You can't cast that off and expect to have anything left but a hollow, selfish, humanistic, cheap social justice. And it won't last. It will fail. That's what it's saying here. Commitment to Christ's interest always produces a commitment to others' interests. You wanna care for people? Care about Christ. On the other hand, Paul's saying this, because there's some of us in this room who are going, no, I do care about Christ. I care only about Christ. I am about Jesus and good sound theology and right doctrine and the inerrancy of scripture and Christian hedonism and the glory of God and all these things. And that's great. But if all of your decisions daily are, are simply verifying that you're committed mostly to living a safe and happy, happy and comfortable life, this text is saying, well, you can take all your pretty great theology and you can just pour it down the sink because that's all it's worth. Because commitment to Christ's interest always produces commitment to others' interests. So do you, do you fancy yourself a theologian or a, a Jesus-loving, Jesus-enjoying Christian? My test to you would be, are you dying to your rights for the sake of other people? You laying down your life for folks or is everything you do efforts to make you more comfortable? That's the test that the scripture's posing to us. It's, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. Commitment to Christ's interest produces commitment to others' interests. And this is what Timothy shows us. So now, now follow me. Are we, we tracking? Are we here? Yes? Yes? Okay. In Paul, we see that Christ is more valuable than our freedom. In Timothy, we see that Christ is more valuable than our self-interest. And here we are at the end and we're given one more life to consider, the life of a man named Epaphroditus. And in his story, we're gonna see that Christ is more valuable even than our own life even in our own life. Look with me at verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Let's stop right there. So this is another moment where Paul's sending someone, right? And get the picture. He's in Rome and he's in Rome with Timothy and Epaphroditus. All three of these men are in Rome and now Paul is saying, hey, I'm sending these guys to you. I'm sending Timothy so he can check on you and report back to me. And now he's saying, I'm sending Epaphroditus uh, as well. And uh, he's sending them back to the Philippians actually, not for the first time, but back to them because Epaphroditus was one of the Philippians. See, he says it right here, he calls them your messenger and minister to my need. Epaphroditus was a Philippian church member who when the Philippian church decided, oh, Paul has some needs, some financial needs and otherwise, we need to send him some stuff. They said, Epaphroditus, you're our man. They gave him the, uh, the goods and the supplies and the finances and they sent him off uh, to go be with Paul. So he was the one bringing these gifts and, uh, uh, and provisions to Paul, we find out about that here and in, in chapter four. And uh, on his way, apparently, Epaphroditus got sick, he got ill. Verse 21 tells us uh, that Paul, uh, Paul says Epaphroditus was distressed 
because he heard, because he, uh, you heard that he was ill. So Paul says, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you, mostly because Epaphroditus is stressed out because he, he heard that you guys found out that he got sick on his way to serve me. And it bothers him to think that uh, you would think Epaphroditus is maybe like on the cusp of death. Maybe he's dead already. They don't know. There's no Facebook messenger. It's not, that's not what's happening here. So they don't know. So he's like, so I'm going to send him back to you guys so that he can be encouraged by seeing that you're encouraged, that he's alive. And Paul comments on his sickness. Uh, verse 27 says he was ill uh, near to death. And verse 30 says, for, for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So this wasn't a head cold. This wasn't like take two of these and call me in the morning. This was like this guy on his deathbed in the service of the gospel. That's Epaphroditus's situation. And you gotta remember, I mean, it makes sense, right? It, travel was not what it is now. He didn't hop on a Southwest flight from love and, and get there and then stay at an Airbnb that night. That's not what happened. This is, when, when you're thinking travel in the ancient times, you have to think in terms of sailboats and donkeys and provisions and water and protection from danger and threats to your life. And you're not thinking in terms of like a couple hours in an afternoon, you're thinking like three or four or five weeks of travel time getting to a place. Like this is a big endeavor. And so it's, it's not crazy to think that, yeah, when Epaphroditus signed up for this, he knew he was not signing up for an easy ride. Epaphroditus came to the table and said, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. And he knew him saying, I'll take it means, and I, I might die, but I'll, I'll take it because, because he's worth it. That's what he's saying. And, and there, there's enough risk baked into his decision here that Paul even highlights that in his description. Look what he says. He says, risking his life to complete what was lacking. That word there is one of, another one of those wonderful Greek moments where this word risking here, the lit, if you were to literally translate it, it would read to throw aside. It was the word an ancient might use to describe gambling. So that when, when Paul's commentating on Epaphroditus's willingness to go and bring these provisions to him, he says, Epaphroditus signed up to throw aside, throw off his, his life, to gamble with his very breath for the sake of the gospel. That's, that's how Paul wants to frame this issue for us, that that. Epaphroditus was willing to gamble with his life to see people made new in the image of Jesus. That is, that is how Epaphroditus was thinking. That's what drove him there. I'll gamble my life so that others can thrive. Epaphroditus willing to give up his life. And so let's just recap for a moment. We just seen the three case studies, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, we watched Epaphroditus, his willingness to lay down his life for the gospel. We watched Paul in prison, willing to lay down his liberty for the gospel. And we watched Timothy and his willingness to lay down his pursuit of his own happiness for the gospel. And I wonder if you heard what I just said. Paul, Epaphroditus, life, Paul, liberty, Timothy, pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
the bullseye that is at the center of the American experiment has been three things. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what the gospel does is it subverts the thinking that somehow we as people are owed that. It opens up our hands as Christians from clinging to the idea that somehow we actually have a right to claim those things for ourselves. And instead what the gospel says is no, what a Christian is, is not somebody who secures life, liberty, and happiness for themselves, but a Christian is one who secures that for their brother at the expense of their life and liberty and happiness. Do you see that? And by the way, it's not wasted on me that this is Memorial Day weekend when we're talking about this. And I get it, I can't help but, but think it, in a way, the sacrifice of so many folks for our country parabolizes what we're talking about here. That there are people who have said, I'm willing to lay down my life so that you can have freedom, so that you can have life, so that you can strive for happiness. And what the gospel says is a profoundly even more rich statement than that, saying Christians lay down their lives so you can have eternal life, eternal liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in a, in a God who doesn't change and will always satisfy. That's, that's what a Christian is. It's someone who, who leans into that. And, and I don't mean to sound un-American when I'm saying that. I just, I just mean to say we are Christians before we are anything else. Amen? And so we open up our hands from around the thing that the world says we should have our hands closed to. Right? We open up our hands because that's what our Savior did. He opened up his hands and forfeited his rights for the good of us. So we model that by opening up our hands for the good of others. And I hope some of you, as you hear this this morning, uh, you'd feel encouraged. That when you hear this, you go, man, I see that by God's grace in me. I see that, that God has worked in me fruit, that I'm, I'm willing to open up my life uh, to, uh, f- from clinging to the things that I think I'm owed. I, I'm, I'm seeing fruit of me getting able to, to serve people and love people well, even at my own expense. I, I hope that for some of you, you hear that and, and be encouraged that the, the Lord is at work in you. He's doing that. And I, and I also think that there's some of us in this room that should be haunted by these three men's stories. There's some of us who, who wear the title of Christian, but we forfeit nothing on a daily basis for the sake of the gospel. Let me just tell you, that's not Christianity. It's not. And some of us, it doesn't have to be big epic things like, like dying on the mission field either. It can be things like you're constantly silent about Jesus when you know you need to open your mouth about him to your friends or coworkers or family, but, but your heart's scared and you'd rather preserve your comfort and your social relations than enter into pain for the sake of the good of somebody else. 
Or maybe you have financial resources that you refuse to leverage for folks around you. And you know there's needs right in maybe your, your own home group, but you plug your ears to it because you'd hate for it to jeopardize your future or your or vacation or your 401k or whatever it might be. I don't know what it is, but these are all micro examples of what it means to say we're Christians with our mouth, but not live like Christ lived, open-handed, laying down our life, liberty, and happiness for the good of others. And so for some of us, we should ask God to search us and convict us, unblind us so that we could really be these type of people who make Jesus look great. And there's, there's one more application as we close that I, I don't want us to miss. So we wanna be people um, who, who live commendable lives, but we also wanna be people who commend commendable lives. Look at verse 29 with me. Paul says, he sneaks this line in there as he's describing Epaphroditus' situation. He says this, verse 29, and honor such men. And honor such men. He, he says, when you see selflessness around you, Christian, when you, when you look around and you see people who are willing to, to die to their comforts and their rights so that other people can flourish and thrive and get to know Jesus better. Like when you see that, you need to affirm them and honor them and celebrate them and make much of them because that's the stuff in life that's truly praiseworthy. That's the stuff that ought to be boasted in by us. And so we're gonna do that right now. We're gonna stop and obey this text right now because there are so many stories and so many folks in our church that I get to see on a regular basis who, who are just exhibiting this faithful, humble, selfless, Christ-exalting, others-interested posture. And so I just wanna, I wanna take a minute and, and by name affirm some of them. There's, there's way too many to, to do an exhaustive list, but I, w- I just wanna grab a few and affirm, and as I affirm them, let's, I want us to celebrate them together. And I'll just start uh, with my home group. I think of Anna Wright. I think of Anna Wright. Yes, yes, Anna Wright. You'll clap more in a minute. You'll clap more. Because, uh, because Anna and our uh, home group of mostly like 18 to 20 year old college students uh, did something so wonderful for one of our, our girls in our home group recently. She had a, a big need where she had to go all the way back to her hometown, which is thousands of miles away from here in Dallas. And uh, it, was, it was a big mess of a situation, really difficult emotionally and spiritually for her. She needed some care. Uh, she needed some soul care and some um, uh, just good shepherding. And Anna raised her hand and said, I, I will go with her. I will clear my schedule. I'll head up there for a few days with her just to care for her and be a comfort for her. If we can figure out how to get a plane ticket situation, I'm there. And our 18 to 20 year olds in our home group over the next 12 hours raised over $1,000 for a plane ticket for her. And she was able to go up and serve uh, this girl for that whole week and bless her. And I just think that's commendable and that's worth honoring. So Anna, we wanna honor you. So let's, let's celebrate Anna, thank you. Yes, yes, that's worth honoring, yes. I think of Bruce Tidmore. Anybody know Bruce Tidmore in here? Yeah, you know Bruce Tidmore. Bruce gets, you know him if you drink coffee. 
I know you know him if you drink coffee. Bruce gets here every Sunday early and he sets up the coffee bar every Sunday and he brews the coffee every Sunday and he does it with a big old smile on his face. Nobody should smile at 6 a.m. Bruce is smiling at 6 a.m. I, I, I love this guy. He just has a heart to serve. There's no glory in that job. That's not a cool job, but he does it week after week and that's commendable. And so we wanna celebrate you, Bruce. Yes. Or, or how about uh, Greg Miller and Bill Stewart? Greg Miller and Bill Stewart, if, if you don't know these guys, these men have been on the setup team Sunday mornings for roughly eight and a half years every week. They come, yes, they come in here, the seats you're sitting in, the, the, and they do it with a group of guys. It's not just them, but they've been doing this for almost nine years. They come in here, set these things up. They set up the preschool area. They get everything ready so that we can come in here and worship God. And I love this. Greg had to step down just recently uh, because of some health reasons from being able to set up week to week. And when he told uh, his team leader that he couldn't set up anymore, he, he was weeping as he was doing it because he, told, he, he was so distraught that he wouldn't be able to come and serve us like this. That, that is a heart that is, that is close to the heart of Jesus, is it not? So let's celebrate those guys together. Yes. Greg and Bill Stewart. Uh, I think about Stacy Beck. If you've got kiddos, especially kiddos in the three-year-old uh, room over there uh, with, our, with our kids, she's been serving in that three-year-old room now for years, literally years. And she, she has opted not to do the, the monthly rotation of I'm off uh, some and on some and back and forth. She's decided I'm gonna serve every week in the three-year-old room. Let me say that again. She serves every week in the three-year-old room. This might be as close to risking your life for the sake of the gospel <laughs> as happens at this church, okay? Stacy Beck is, is consistently setting the good news of Jesus before our little ones. And, and, and they're getting to know their God because of her faithful service. Like that blesses us. And if you're a mom or dad with kids in the room, you know that's a blessing. So let's celebrate her. Yes. Thank you, Stacy. And look, I've, I've got stories for days and I've got, I've got people for days, right? And, but we, we, we can't keep going on like this, so I've got an application for you. You ready? Here's the application from this text in verse 29. Your application this week is, if I've been talking and somebody came to your mind, somebody who, who exhibits these godly characteristics of humility and self-service, and they came to your mind, your job this week is to find them and tell them that and honor them. They might be here this morning. If they're here this morning, I want you to grab, pull them aside this morning in the lobby or wherever. I want you to look them in the eyes and I want you to affirm them and tell them that what they're doing matters. It matters in the eyes of Christ and it matters to you. That we wanna be a culture of honor here. Or maybe they're not here this morning and you, and you write them a letter or you drop by their house and bring them a meal just to say thank you for, for serving. We wanna be a culture of honor that honors the honorable. And there are so many folks by God's grace in this church that are honorable. And I'm so thankful for that. But that's, that's your application this week. We always wanna be a culture of honor, but let's, let's be specifically that this week and look for a few folks that we can affirm in that. Amen? Amen. I, I really hope that God gives us the grace not only to, to do that with our mouth, but to be people who are honorable ourselves. And, and 
And uh, may God give us the grace to do that uh, and do that humbly for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus did not just model for us sacrifice and sacrificial living. He did that, God, and he showed us it in, in the perfect way, but he didn't just do that. God, we thank you that our Savior died for us to purchase for us the ability to be able to be humble and selfless, that you purchased new hearts for your people, God. And God, we just wanna say, if there is any good in us in this room, if there is any humility or lowliness of spirit, if there's any willingness to die to our preferences, to give up life and liberty and happiness for the, for the sake of others, God, that's you doing it through us. And you've done a good work. And we wanna give glory where it's due and it's due to you. So thank you, King Jesus, for purchasing for us new hearts and for filling us with your spirit so we can obey. And we pray that we would obey so that, so that in this earth, we would be the fragrance, the aroma of Christ to people, that they would see you as the, the bright blazing treasure that you are because you are. So God, please work that into our hearts and do that by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.